Amen. We are continuing this series today, and I'd like to invite you here as we start. If you'd like to open up in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, we will read from that text here in just one moment. Luke chapter 7. Today, as we continue to reflect on, on guilt and shame and what God's Word has to say about all of that, today we, we want to focus in particular on what God's Word has to say now, a word of good news about grace and mercy, God's response to our sin and our guilt and our shame. And this passage here in Luke 7 will be our centering text for this morning. This is God's Word, Luke 7, starting in verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. And you did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of God. Without a doubt, this is a scene of tremendous grace and mercy. To begin with, the passage gives us such insight into the heart of Jesus. I mean, we see right here as, as we look at it, uh, although Jesus has some harsh things to say to the Pharisees from time to time, and we'll look at a few of those here in just a few moments, Jesus doesn't consider them to be his enemies. When this scene opens, we find Jesus at the home of a Pharisee, Simon. And he's gathered around the table. He's reclining at the table. And I find that really, really interesting. 
Because in a culture like ours, in a culture where we are so quick to vilify and demonize anyone with whom we have the slightest difference of opinion, we can learn much from the example of Jesus, can't we? The one who continues to break bread even with those who would oppose him. Scholars say that it was customary at feasts like this, especially in the ancient world, for, for those who were in need to come in and to, to be allowed to receive some of the leftovers. So if that's the case, perhaps the other guests at Simon's home would have assumed that that's the reason that our, our sinful woman shows up here. But it appears that she has, has something else in mind. Luke tells us that she is known throughout the town as a sinner. And that's a term that came to be used in particular by the Pharisees in Jesus' day to refer to a certain group of people, to refer to prostitutes and thieves and those whose sins were blatant and obvious sins of a very public sort of nature not the kind of sins that the establishment sometimes winks at and overlooks the sins that are very very public so she wears this label of sinner and everybody in town knows it but apparently apparently she is as aware of her status as a sinner as anyone else she brings in this alabaster jar of perfume, the text says. And I wonder, was this some sort of, of offering? You know, what, what, what did she intend? And clearly, I think she came to anoint his feet with oil, but you dig deeper. Um, if she was a prostitute, as many scholars believe, then this perfume was very likely a, a work accessory for her. And so maybe in this we see an act of renouncing that former lifestyle. Maybe that's what's going on here. Maybe for once she wants to use this perfume for something good and, and redemptive. And maybe in this we should hear a, a turning away from an old way of life. I like to think that. Uh, perhaps it's just as simple as the... The jar of perfume is the only thing she had to offer. Shane Claiborne is a, a Christian author, and he tells a story of being at a worship assembly once in a homeless shelter. And as they're worshiping and, and praising God, they begin to pass around the collection plate. And he notices one homeless gentleman on the front row who, when the plate comes to him, he reaches in his pockets and pats down and reaches out and puts the only thing he had in the collection plate, and that was a pack of cigarettes. And so, so maybe this story functions in sort of the same way. Maybe this jar of perfume is the only thing she has to offer. Who knows? But before she can even pour out that perfume on, on his feet, something breaks inside of her. And she begins to weep, the text says. And she begins to cover the feet of Jesus with her tears. Have you ever been that heartbroken? And then in, a, in a act of, uh, an act of humility that still kind of 
is unfathomable. She, she begins then to, to wipe his feet with her hair. Can you imagine wiping his feet with her own hair? And no doubt that, that strikes us as an undignified act. And you can bet that the people at Simon's home that night thought the same thing. But it gets even worse because after wiping his feet with her hair, she begins kissing his feet. And then she pours the perfume on them. And we can only imagine what people were thinking at this point. But we don't have to imagine what Simon was thinking because Luke tells us, he gives us insight into his inner monologue. It, Luke tells us that Simon says to himself, if this man, if Jesus were truly a prophet, he'd know who this woman was. And there's no way he would let this woman touch him like that. Because, and here's the kicker again, she is a sinner. And that's when Jesus challenges Simon's thoughts. And he challenges his thoughts in the way that he typically does he tells a story he tells a story about two men who are in debt and, and the one owes uh, the moneylender 500 denarii which roughly comes to about 20 months worth of paychecks and he says there's another one who owes 50 which comes to roughly two months worth of paychecks so there's one guy who owes nearly two years worth and the other guy owes two months worth and neither can pay. And so the moneylender decides that he's going to cancel those debts. Just wipe the slate clean. And Jesus says, well, which one of them will love him more? And Simon offers up this really reluctant sort of phrase. Go back and look at it again. He says, well, I suppose the one who had the larger debt canceled. He talk about an uneasy and reluctant answer. And I wonder sometimes, what is it about mercy and grace that makes us so uneasy at times? I think in order to understand Simon's reluctance, it might be helpful for us to understand a little something about what we refer to as Second Temple Judaism. That would have been the Jewish thought in the first century, in the time of Jesus. When Ezra returned from Babylon 450 years before the birth of Christ, he and the other Jewish leaders recognized that the reason for the Babylonian captivity is because the people were disobedient. They did not obey the terms of the law. They took a passage like this seriously, Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. So upon returning to the homeland, the leaders set out to teach those commands to the people. And that is when the school of the Soferim developed. That was when the school of the scribes developed. You know, by the time you get into the, the New Testament, you read about Jesus, and he has these confrontations, and there's all these lists of individuals. You know, you have the Pharisees, you have the Sadducees, but then you also have the scribes. And so the scribes developed out of this impulse that began with Ezra and ran down through the centuries to teach the people the word of God. And that's the context within which we find Jesus emerging in the first century. But with each successive generation, these soferim, these scribes, what they set out to do was not just simply to teach the word of God. It wasn't enough just to explain the word of God. Instead, they did this. They thought the best way to approach this was to, to, to build a fence, if you will, 
around the commands so that no one would come close to breaking those commands so that they would not risk going back into exile. And so they decided to build this fence around the Torah. So they took those 613 commands that you find in the law of Moses and the the scribes would sit around and the, the rabbis would do this later and they would try and extrapolate out practical applications. How do we keep this law? How do we keep people from breaking this law? And so this extreme kind of devotion to the law, and then over time, not just the devotion to the law, but devotion to their own interpretations and applications of the law came to be known as legalism. So, for example, in Exodus chapter 23, a passage I'm sure you're all familiar with, it says, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. How many sermons have you heard on that one? over the years, right? Well, maybe one after today, okay? So let's think about this. This is just kind of an example of how this developed. So in all likelihood, this command was given, this law was given to keep Israel from participating in some sort of pagan worship practice that was common in the, in the land of Canaan. So the Canaanites, uh, whenever they would, they would uh, in their, their worship, what they would do is they would take, they would take a, a baby goat, a kid, And when that that baby goat was born, when that kid was born, they would take the kid from its mother, they would milk the mother, they would then boil the baby goat in its mother's milk, okay, you with me? (laughs) And then here's the important part, they would then sacrifice that animal, they would take all of that and, and give it as an offering to Baal. So clearly, if that's the practice that was going on in Canaan, 1400 years or so before Jesus was born you can see why God would say hey that's not a great look that's not what I want for my people that's that's a bad practice because that's what the pagans do okay so that was the intent behind the command and the law but a thousand years later by the time Ezra comes along by the time the people are coming back out of Babylonian captivity those kinds of Canaanite practices had had stopped So the original intent of that commandment had long been forgotten. But in the school of the Sopharim, in the school of the scribes, the question was still there. Okay, how do we make sure that we never, ever, ever boil a kid in the milk of its mother? And so this is where the teaching of the scribes became really burdensome. Because they reasoned, and they would do this sort of thing all the time, but they would take this command and they would reason. They would say, okay, so suppose you eat uh, a piece of meat. And with that meat, you drink a glass of milk, okay? Uh, It is possible that the milk you drink would be from the mother of the meat that you are eating. So as you swallow both the meat and the milk, it mixes in your stomach. They would absolutely do this. I'm not making this up. They would absolutely talk about this. It mixes in your stomach, and when it mixes, guess what? You are boiling the the goat you're boiling the meat in the milk of its mother and when you do that you become a lawbreaker okay so what happened in the wake of that kind of conversation is a new law developed they came up with this new law this is we say law it's really like an interpretation of what god said but they treated it like law this oral law was a jew cannot eat meat and dairy at the same meal they must be separated by about four hours Sorry, no ice cream after lunch today, okay? 
And that, that's how they would kind of do this. And so the, the scribes and the rabbis did that sort of thing all the time, okay? But the legalistic logic of the scribes went even further. So then they would say, okay, suppose at noon for lunch, you eat a, a, a dairy meal. You have a plate, and, fr- and on this plate you put some cheese. So you eat the cheese for lunch, and when you're done, you go and you, you wash it, and you scrub the plate, you know, really, really good. But you leave a tiny little speck of cheese on the plate. Microscopic piece of cheese. They, don't, they wouldn't have had that word, but you get the idea. Like a tiny little piece of cheese you leave on the plate. And then in the evening, you use that same plate, and you eat some meat. You with me? So when you're eating the meat, then the meat might possibly pick up that tiny little speck of cheese. And no matter how remote, okay, it might be possible that the cheese you had at noon was made from the milk of the mother of the meat that you're eating later in the day. And as you swallow this tiny speck of cheese with the meat, you boil the kid in the milk of its mother and thus you become a sinner. Therefore, another new law. All Jews must have two sets of dishes. We're not making this up. This is totally the way they would do it. They had one for dairy and one for meat. And if you use one out of order, if you, you, know, if you accidentally kind of mess up, you're like, oh, what are you doing? You're putting the turkey on the cheese plate. Or whatever. If that happened, you had to throw the plate away or you had to go give it to a Gentile. But no Jew could ever eat on that plate ever again. Okay? And all of that That's just an example of of one Old Testament command and the ways in which the scribes and the Pharisees would would take that command and build a fence around it, put all this scaffolding around it. So, hey, we don't want to get anywhere close to breaking that law, so now we've developed all these other new laws that you have to maintain. You go back to Simon the Pharisee, okay? The Pharisees stood in this stream of Second Temple Judaism that sought to be faithful to the command of God and hear this okay this is why these these guys weren't the enemies of Jesus that is a really really good thing right they sought to be faithful to the command of God but I hope you can see through all that how easily that good impulse could turn into compulsive Legalism, driven by this slavish devotion to law-keeping. So in a world like that, one dish for dairy, one dish for meat, you know, in that kind of world, you can only imagine how this sinful woman would have been viewed in her community. I mean, her, her actions go far beyond putting meat and cheese on the same plate. But Jesus stands against those who would pride themselves on fastidiously maintaining the rules, in particular, the rules that they've created. Because according to Jesus, he says ultimately they don't practice what they preach. Look at what he says to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law, those are scribes, and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. This is not Jesus at his most warm and cuddly. Our culture has a picture of Jesus like he's Mr. Rogers, 
you know? Now, if you read the Bible, you see this different picture of, of Jesus, okay? This is Jesus. He's pretty angry. This is pretty, uh, you know, in your face from Jesus. But that statement hopefully makes a little more sense when you understand this whole goat milk cheese plate thing that was going on in the time of Jesus. So he says to these Pharisees, he says to these scribes, hey, look, you, you go, you've been over backwards to convert someone to bring them into your way of life. But when you do that, you only bring them into the most burdensome way of life that they've ever known. You hypocrites. And then he follows it up by saying this, what do you teachers of the law and the Pharisees? You hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former, you blind guides, straining out gnats, swallowing camels. Scribes and Pharisees were concerned with mechanically following the letter of the law, or more precisely, the law plus their own interpretations of the law. But Jesus criticizes them for neglecting the weightier matters of the law, those matters, again, of justice and mercy and righteousness, faithfulness. He goes on to say that they are like whitewashed tombs. They look great on the outside, but inside, their interior life, they are rotting and dying. Here's the thing. This sinful woman comes to Jesus heartbroken. Again, in her sorrow, she's weeping at his feet. In her humility, she is wiping his feet with her own hair. And all Simon can think is, why is he letting her touch him? Again, this woman is broken. But he can't even see that because of his slavish obsession with law-keeping. His legalism trumps his compassion. And when your legalism trumps your compassion, don't be surprised if you look up one day and find yourself standing opposite of Jesus. Jesus turns his attention to this woman. He says three things. He says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has healed you. Your faith has saved you. And he says, go in peace. In the face of that pharisaical legalism, Jesus sees this broken woman, and he offers her mercy and grace. What's the difference between the two? Someone's defined them this way. That mercy is when God doesn't give you what you do deserve. Grace, on the other hand, is when God does give you what you don't deserve. It's a good definition. Uh, I like the way Joe Beam kind of explains this in his book. He says that uh, mercy would be going down the highway, doing well over the speed limit, state trooper pulls you over, lets you go with a warning. <laughs> that would be mercy, right? Because you don't receive what you deserve. He had you dead to rights, you know? I hear that sometimes you can get out of those speeding tickets. That's never happened to me, okay? But I hear that that can happen. So that, that would be mercy, because you didn't receive what you deserved. Grace, on the other hand, would be not only does he let you go with a warning, but then he, he says to you, you know, uh, Mr. Bybee, actually, I need to congratulate you. You're the 100th person I've pulled over this week. 
And uh, as, a, as a gift from the great state of Alabama tourism department, you know, we're actually kind of giving out a, a, a cash prize. So you win $100,000 for being the 100th person I pulled over this week. You know, enjoy your free gift. That would be giving someone something, giving me something that I absolutely did not deserve or merit or earn. And that's the distinction there between mercy and grace. So Jesus offers her mercy when he doesn't condemn her for her sin. Her sins are public. Everyone knows what she's done. Again, it goes far beyond milk and cheese and meat, right? But he doesn't condemn her. He offers her mercy. But taking it even further, he offers her grace when he, when he forgives her. He sends her on her way. That's grace. It is an extravagant gift that is given when we don't even deserve it. John says in 1 John 3, 1, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. Grace is lavish. You don't lavish a gift on someone who you barely know. You lavish a gift upon someone that you love and, and cherish and want the best things for. And that is grace. And maybe that's why sometimes we have a problem with it. Because it seems to violate some inner sense of justice that we live with and that we, we carry around with us. But those twin themes of mercy and grace, you find them running throughout all of the great teachings of Jesus. You find them in, in the story of the prodigal son, one of his most well-known stories. Think about all the ways that mercy and grace operate in the telling of that tale to make it one of the most well-known stories in human history. Or the story of the, the compassionate Samaritan, the good Samaritan, if you want to call him that. It is also a story that is so well-known and yet it is a story brimming with mercy and grace. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, turn the other cheek. He says, pray for your enemies, for those who would stand against you. Pray for them. Seek to, to bless those who would persecute you. In all his great teachings, they come back to grace and mercy. And then there's also this, not just in his teachings, but in his very way of life. Mercy and grace characterize so much of who he was. John says in his gospel that Jesus came full of grace and truth, and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. You find Jesus extending both mercy and grace to the woman at the well in Samaria comes to draw her water and the time of day when she expects no one to be there. And yet she receives a lavish gift from Jesus. Jesus extends mercy and grace later in John's gospel to a woman who is brought before him, caught in the very act of adultery. And, and the scribes and the Pharisees come and they say, Jesus, what should we do? According to the law of Moses, she should be stoned. 
Pilate, however, would not let them cast their own death sentences. So they thought they had this perfect little trap laid for Jesus. If he says, yes, stone her, he stands in opposition of Roman law, and they could arrest him for that. But if he says, ah, let her go, what's the big deal? Then he would be, a law, he, he would be standing in opposition to the law of Moses. They could get him for that. And they had this perfect little plan hatched. And they're willing to use this woman as bait. Technically, the law says you're supposed to bring both parties involved, right? And somehow or other, the, the male in that scenario is nowhere to be found. And they drag her before Jesus and they throw her down. You remember what he says? Basically, my paraphrase, yeah, you're right. You, you got her dead to right. She deserves death. She's a sinner. And you can kill her as soon as one of you steps forward and says, I don't have any sin in my life too. They drop their rocks. They walk away. And he looks around. He says, hey, where'd everybody go? All those who were opposing you, all those who were condemning you, where are they? He says, they split. They're gone. Neither then do I condemn you, he says. And then this. Go and sin no more. You're made for so much more than the way you've been living. Because he's lavished her with mercy and grace, he has a hearing with her. It's powerful. Unless we forget more than any other story in the gospel, what we find Jesus doing at the cross, the ultimate expression of mercy and grace. He extends his arms wide. And he accepts the punishment that should have been ours. Then he also gives us something we could never merit or earn or deserve, and that is eternal life with God. Jesus says to this woman, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And you can experience that same reality today. You can leave here in the peace of knowing that God has forgiven your sins in the person of Jesus Christ. For some of us, it may just be as simple as this, believing that mercy and grace are yours. On the day of Jesus, there were some who I suppose just couldn't quite believe that. They'd grown up with all of those extra laws being added to what God had already said, skewed their understanding who God really was. Today, maybe some of us are in that same category. I asked you last week, what do you believe about sin? What do you believe about grace? Today, I would say, do you believe the power of God is made available to a sinner like you and to a sinner like me? Well, the Pharisees got it wrong. The only thing that kept them from experiencing the power of the kingdom of God Believing that the sinners were out there. That there was no sinner in here. Would you humble yourself today and accept the gift of his mercy and his grace? Maybe there's some other needs on your heart that you need to share as well. If you are in, in need of sharing any of that with us, if we can help in any way, I hope you will let us know. Let's stand together and let's sing our song of invitation.